I'm just agreeing violently. <laughs> okay, we get it. These poor scrum masters. I think Donny probably attacked the microphone there. Right, so with that said, let's give us the history of the spine model. Okay, so I assume all of you have heard of this thing called extreme programming, right? Yeah, read the book, got the t-shirt. Have you noticed that the extreme programming book is laid out in three different sections specifically? The values, the principles, and the practices. Yeah. Say that again, sorry? Yeah. Well, the, the, those are the three places that he, when he introduces it, he introduces those three sections to start with. So what's wonderful about that is it becomes an interesting framing exercise of conversations, right? So the way he does it in extreme programming book, he says, the values comes first, then the principles, then the primary practices, and then the corollary practices. I still can't say that. Okay, so then, so we've got the values, principles, and practices in extreme programming. Uh, which I think uh, is often synonymous with uh, with agile in that kind of sense. But where does where does that relate into the spine model? Where does spine fits into our picture here? So the first time Kevin and I started consulting together, uh, a very interesting person by the name of Sandra Rieder. <laughs> Sandra asked us this question: uh, What is our approach when we approach? teams and people and humans conversations and so forth and Kevin and I stared blankly at each other for a while and then realized sort of at the same time that clearly values principles and practices is the way that we approach things and as we started that conversation we realized it is the way in which we actually have conversations with people we work through these three levels the whole time let me use a story to explain Uh, one of the first teams that I coached it was at a telecoms company and uh, I was fresh off an agile team that was very energized and doing very well. And I was very excited about in the world. And I went in there and I installed Hudson and I installed a good version control system and I installed a bunch of stuff. And then I said, behold what I have installed. And they didn't care. And that was a bit of a problem for me because I was supposed to be saving the world and they didn't care. And so that started me on my journey of figuring out what really is important and how to get other people to understand what is important and how to actually shift teams and organizations to a better place. So what I was doing is I was trying to treat what they were struggling with as a tool problem. And it's it's very seldom a tool problem. And so when I started to realize that, I said, okay, well, then what is the problem? And, and where which angle do you come at it from? Uh, and you know the team that I'd come from before was an XP team, and the whole values, principles, practices thing was just ingrained in the team. It wasn't something they really had to think much about. And so when I went back to thinking, well, what made that team successful and what is making other teams less successful, I started to realize that that's a fundamental approach to how you do things. Um, if you just focus on practices, they're not underpinned by anything. They they sort of can go off in any direction. You actually have to understand principles behind them in order to know how to do any practice correctly. 
if I tell you I'm doing TDD, there's actually very little information quantity in that statement. Like you can do TDD in a million different ways and only five of them are helpful. But if you understand the principles of why you do TDD and then you do the practice, you're far more likely to be successful. And so I, my coaching approach started to focus more on the principles of things. That was marginally more successful. And what I often came up against is that the value systems were different. And then we had a group together and we were studying NBC. Have you guys come across NBC before? I haven't. New topic, nonviolent communication. <laughs> uh, so Kevin and I and a bunch of other people started studying nonviolent communication. Uh, you're skipping a level, though. That's needs. Uh, well, nonviolent communication is the needs. I know. So I'm going to stay where we were, right? Okay. So extreme programming, values, principles, practices. Those of you listening, visualize this. Values are at the top, then principles, then practices. And Kevin and I was doing a workshop with a bunch of people, and a bunch of people kept on asking, excuse the language, stupid questions like, how can we be agile with Jira? And both of us got frustrated and said, but you're having a tools conversation right now, and a tools conversation right now is not interesting. And in that moment, we looked at each other and we just added tools to the bottom of the stack. So right now, the stack looks like values, principles, practices, and then finally, tools. That makes okay. a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so now we had four items in this list, and, and we're realizing that in order to sort of have effective conversations and progress, you need to go up a few levels. Uh, and so we were sort of saying, okay, well, where does it end? Where does it begin? And through studying NVC at the same time, the, the focus of NVC is on needs and meeting needs. Uh, definitely highly recommended. There's a Marshall Rosenberg video free on YouTube. It's about an hour long. It'll change your life. And not even kidding. Sorry, I'm seeing three fingers from Donnie. So either that's a weird gangster sign or it's three hours, <laughs> not one hour. Never know with Donnie. <laughs> and uh, so this focus on needs is an interesting way to think. And we realized that really fundamentally needs belongs right at the top of the hierarchy. Uh, and if you if you want to be effective, you have to start at needs. So needs would be for instance, for instance, to drive and understand the real value of the system, like the business value. It's not that we get to play with some fancy new technology. It's this system must do X in Y environment and deliver a certain kind of value before anything else. So, so sort of. I mean, this is, this is one of the ways I think about it. And one of the interesting things is about one, once we had this model, we found a hundred different ways to apply it and many different lenses to look at it. So let's, let's take that value one. Often what you find with the team, the vision, right? And this is what you're going to build, and that's where you're going, and it's going to be awesome, right? And the team heads off in that direction. And then at some point, they get to a split in the path. And maybe that split is, should we use zero or not? Maybe the split is, should we do TDD or not? And half the team walks down one split, and the other half walks down the other split, and now they have a problem, all right? And how you typically resolve this problem on most teams is you find a higher power to appeal to. We've got to do it because it's in the Scrum Guide, or we've got to do it because it's part of XP, or 
you know, my guy is more important and knows more stuff than your guy, and therefore we should listen to my guy. And that's not particularly useful as a way of actually resolving that conflict. And for me, that's one of the fundamental problems of only having a vision and a strategy is it it, it gives you a direction but doesn't actually help you resolve that sort of thing. For me, what you've got to do is to walk back up that path to a point of agreement. And walking back up that path is going back to the needs. Why does this team exist in the first place? Why did it come together? What need does it exist to satisfy? Let's go back there and agree that. And then we can all walk together down the path again and figure out what's the best way forward. That sounds a lot like a negotiation technique almost. Well, fundamentally, it's, it's how to have effective conversations. That's a lost art. And uh, let me get Donnie started on old Greek guy for you. Thank you, Kevin. Old Greek guy, uh, there's this whole field of study called rhetoric, ancient rhetoric specifically. And if you don't know about it, please Google rhetoric. And there's specifically, I will, I will make sure the links appear for that. This is an ancient body of knowledge. It's about 2,000 years old. And the whole point of rhetoric is to start with a point of agreement. You do not have the point of agreement. You cannot have an effective conversation. And we find that the spy model specifically makes it quite easy to find the point of agreement so that then we can decide where we disagree. And then you walk down the levels of the spine till you get to tools, <coughs> if I have to shortcut a bit. More or less. So we walk down and we say, okay, we are currently agreeing that we have this principle in common, and we're currently disagreeing that this practice or tool will get us that principle. So now we can agree for the next two weeks, we will do it your way. And then at the end of two weeks, we'll say, that was a dumb idea. Or that was a good idea. So this to me, so I've been watching and reading up a lot lately about the Google SRE teams and their site reliability stuff and trying to figure out how you can pull that stuff out. And I think this sounds a lot like it's implicit in some of the videos I've seen there, but basically how they also work together to get this conflicting ideas of what a sysadmin wants and what developers want and finding the common lingo, which is reliability, and how everybody can measure that, and then go from there, how does everybody pursue that? Am I interpreting that right? Yeah, it, it sounds like it. Um, so when we're applying this model, there's a step zero for us before we actually can apply it usefully, and that's defining the boundaries of the system. And And when we say that, we mean... It's more the, the human work system than sort of an IT or a built system. Uh, it's interesting when we when we do this with teams, we ask them, you know, who's in the team and who's out the team? Just just draw the team for me. And what happens is you you get a few stares like, really, are you asking us such a dumb question? And then and you get three or four different answers. And that's an interesting conversation on its own. But once you've drawn the boundaries of the system and everybody agrees, okay, this is the system we're talking about, then you can get to, okay, what is the need for the system? And you're sort of forcing it into a, a systemic thinking mode. You know, traditionally as techies, we're taught to think analytically. If we want to understand something, we try and understand. And if it's too complex, we break it into pieces and understand the pieces. And we keep breaking down the pieces until we understand all the pieces. And therefore, we must understand the whole. 
Now, if you're trying to understand a car, analytical thinking is a great way of understanding how an engine works and how wheels work and how the whole car works. But it's never going to tell you why in South Africa we drive on the left-hand side of the road and the U.S. you drive on the right-hand side. And so that is the difference between analytic thinking and systemic thinking. Systemic thinking asks, what is this a part of, instead of asking, what is this part? So if you can agree on the boundaries of the system and then get to needs, you're asking, what is this a part of? What is its function in the whole? Is it effective and does it meet the needs of the whole at the moment? And let's agree what that is. And then we can start walking down the stack to the more to detailed levels. Could you take us oh, slowly through an example of how we would work down? So let's say we have discovered the boundaries of the human system and we work through the differences. I guess I can imagine in a team you'd see how some people would draw complete other stakeholders in because they're the people that just shortcut the process and come and interfere the whole time to get their features landed. But like, let's say we've sorted that part out. How do we then work our way down through to values and uncover what's important there? So the first thing to note is that the spine model, we apply it everywhere, not only in human work systems, not only in team situations, also in organizational things, also when we learn new things. Uh, it has become the way in which we catalog information, in fact. So when we read books, we have a conversation about what are the principles in there and what are the practices in there. So all of that said, a very specific way in which we do apply the spine model is step zero, define the boundaries of the system. Uh, that step usually takes much longer than you think. Step one after that is a specific practice that we call the team bootstrap. And Kenneth, you will be aware of this. It is basically a value elicitation session for the whole group. Uh, the group of them being eight or less people. And after we have elicited the personal values for everyone present, uh, we take those values and say, okay, what need of yours do you wish to satisfy in this system? And if we can understand the need of every single human there and all of the values that drive those needs and make the team aware for each other what that is, you're already at a very good place. So that's the outcome of the team boost. So essentially, you're saying there's two levels to needs. There's the needs for the, of the system. Why does the team exist? But there's the needs of the people in that system. Because if you're part of a team, you're choosing to be there. You may not particularly like it. You may love it. At the end of the day, you got into your car, you drove to the building, you're part of that team, and you chose to be there. So what needs do you hope to be met by being a part of that team? And what what would cause you to check into that team and really be a part of it? And what are the things that would cause you to check out? And if you can do that implicitly with a team so they can actually get it down on one big piece of paper and say, right, we, we almost we contract with each other that we're going to do these things for each other, you have the basis for a healthy team. What you find is you, you find healthy and dysfunctional teams all over the place. But if you just allow that to naturally evolve, it could go in either direction. If you kick it off with this bootstrap and value solicitation and a contract, you, you set it off in a very healthy direction where when there is conflict and when there is disagreement of how to get to a vision or what practices to use or what tools to choose, you've got that healthy 
core that people can go back to and it it shows them how they can deal with conflict how they can raise things and you, now you can say to somebody hey you know i think you're not sticking to number three on the contract rather than saying to them you're do us for doing what you just did it, it allows people to have healthy dialogue and a healthy conflict um and teach it starts to teach them to apply the spine model in an effective way as well yeah so i like that old saying is that good fences make good neighbors and i think the what you're describing there of having needs or having a kind of contract between the team members informally or formally as it may be um, just that everyone has an uh, an understanding of what's expected of everyone else does help that would that be a fair statement yeah, I think so. And, and you probably feel that it's a bit weird to talk about needs, right? It's, it seems like an odd thing. Like That's not something we should be really discussing openly. But when you can bring it out in the open and talk about it, I mean, the, the set of human needs is actually fairly small and fairly shared. And if you can be honest and, and upfront with it, you can take things to a very healthy place. And and we often find in these bootstrap events, they're, they're quite emotional. And, and that goes pretty deep for some people. Um, I remember there was one team that we worked with where there was just very an, an unhealthy dynamic. People weren't sharing, people weren't talking to each other. And one of the devs shared a story about how he went to university, but he couldn't afford food. And so he camped out on the university grounds and ate raw avos in order to have some food. And just the way he told that story and the look in his eyes when he told it, that was a key turning point for the team. From then on, everything was different. I take it you guys have borrowed a lot from NLP for this because it's, it's all sounding so familiar for me. <laughs> yes, quite correctly guessed. So the values bit we take almost straight from NLP. Uh, the point we say about values is values are personal, right? So you have your own set of values. No team, no system can ever tell you what your values are. The best we can come up with is these are your values. These are the words you use for your values. And then on that team contract, what we put there is what are the behaviors that you want to see to get your values met and your needs met? So a silly example and a very real example is uh, one of my values is respect. And the best way for you to break respect when I work with you on a team is for you to touch my screen. If you touch my screen, I will break your finger. So every single <laughs> team I work on, that is an important behavioral statement to get out there very quickly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that probably means down the road, the, the people also self-select who they work with uh, much better for different things, different tasks and, and stuff that they need to do. They know if they need, well, I guess you'll also like, it will come up who's, who wants to pay, who doesn't want to pay, but would just want to do code reviews. Like who's the person to go talk to that values, this kind of thing in the system, if you're stuck and when to do not to take a problem to, it makes a lot of sense to me. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what we find is that, the ability to form teams well with people and, and work in a new team well is a skill. It's a skill that can be learned. And one of the models 
we love models. We collect them like butterflies. One of our favorites is the Dreyfus model, and it, it ties in very nicely to the spine and it complements it nicely. But the Dreyfus model of skills acquisition, do you want to tell a background story? Mm-hmm. Where I came around? So apparently in the 80s, there was a bunch of nurses in. So this comes straight from Andy Hunt's Pragmatic Learning, uh, Pragmatic Refactoring Your Wetware book. So please read the book. In the 1980s, there was a bunch of nurses that were very effective in hospitals, and there were a bunch of nurses right next to them who were not effective at all. And they started doing research and asking the question, why are some of you effective and why are some of you not? And the research that this model came out of the research. So it is an interesting model that maps the novice to master part. So... It's important to remember also that it's a per-skill model, not per-person model. So you might be a master car driver, but a novice bicycle rider. So for any particular skill, you're going to be somewhere on the spectrum from novice to advanced, beginner to intermediate to um, up to master at the top um, or expert and then master. Anyway, there's like five levels. But the point is that certain dynamics shift as you go through those levels. So for example, for a novice, everything is equally important. It's very hard for them to intuitively know what is more important than something else for that particular thing. Whereas once you grow more expertise, you start to realize the context and the local situation. You start to realize that some things are more important than others. Another important dynamic that shifts is that for a novice, they need rules in order to function. They have to have clear boundaries so that they can progress forward. And if they're put in an environment where there aren't those rules, because they don't understand context, because they don't know which parts are more important than others, they're going to flounder without those rules. Now, you take an expert and put them in that same environment with those same rules, and they'll feel completely constrained because they've transcended the rules and they can function quite well without them. And if you then link that into the spine model... So the thing about that to realize then is that if you take an expert and you tell him to use Jira because that's the best thing, you're going to lose him. If you take an expert and you say, this is the need we're trying to satisfy, will you please satisfy that need for us? He might still use Jira, but he will know the need that he's satisfying. And he might start using Jira differently, knowing that as opposed to it just being forced on him. Yes. Uh, and you would have very effective conversations. Yeah, it takes the emphasis off the individual task that someone's doing, which is what the novice would need of having the, this um, safety net of do step one, then do step two, then do step three. Um, and by removing that safety net and leaving the freedom to work towards what would be, a com- I suppose, a common goal of the team by uh, dealing with the needs that, that are described up front, uh, the person using Jira, just insert a tool name here, would use it specifically in lieu of the need that that the team has. And that's the lo- that's the other important point, right? So a novice wants to know what practices and tools are being applied by a team uh, in that context. So a novice do not necessarily like to understand the need that this team is satisfying because the poor novice is just trying to cope with all the tools and practices being thrown at him or her. So often understanding the needs and values, it's a, what we call a metacognitive skill. It's, it's thinking about thinking. 
and you can't think about thinking at a novice level. That is an expert level sort of problem. And so what we find is that when we introduce spine model to, to novice teams, they really struggle to go above the practices and tools. And so what we might then get involved with is, is putting some heuristic boundaries in place, taking the principles that we already know work and giving them some boundaries within which to start evolving their practices and tools. And then at the same time, getting their skill level up and their metacognitive ability up so that they can draw themselves up into principles, values, and needs, and over time get more effective at that level. Thanks. I was going to ask that next is how you grow a young team uh, to start adopting this. And we kind of touched on that. So if if we do have a, a, a team, let's say they've been working together for quite some time, but maybe they're not that mature in the context of this spine model, what would be some of those default principles that you could just like bring in and that might work? And I know it's very broad and, and without context, it might even be dangerous. But if it's a safe one, you can give an example. Well, we, we do have a pet one. We could tell you the pet one. Sure. Um, so I, I mentioned the concept of heuristics earlier. Um, and it's it's an interesting way of looking things. If you give people rules, the problem with that is they don't have sort of local context. And then the number of rules you have to give people grows and grows and grows. And eventually you've just got a system full of rules, right? So heuristics are sort of rules of thumb. Everybody knows they're going to be wrong sometimes, but, you know, they're going to teach you what to do. You just have to decide it for yourself. And they're usually effective in groups of three. So if you look at the American military, um, they say if, if your platoon gets into trouble, stay together, keep moving, find the high ground. And those are three heuristics that don't really tell you what to do. But afterwards, you can ask the platoon, hey, did you guys stay together? Did you keep moving? Did you find the high ground? How did you do that? Now, that's the concept of, of heuristics. And heuristics are nice and powerful because it can give those boundaries to the novice, but allow them to push back on them and grow as they get further along the path. So one of our favorite ones, a group of three, is increase feedback, decrease batch size, pull work through the system. And if teams can critically analyze how, what are they doing to increase feedback, what are they doing to bring down their batch sizes, and what are they doing to pull instead of push work through the system, they can start to experiment in interesting ways. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm just thinking there's so many things that you guys are mentioning. I'm sitting here sweating almost like it's implicit. And and I think that was what you meant earlier on you said you guys realized there was this model backing your conversation. Because we're all about increasing feedback with like Slack channels, whatever, and a kind of chat thing and, and async stuff and people can see what's going on and it's notifications of everything and boards and, and information radiators and offices and some people don't cope with that. And I was just reading an interesting article earlier on successful stable systems being like smaller batches. Yeah, and I remember the one thing that, well, when Ken Peck was here last year, he specifically mentioned is that if you're able to reduce your uh, release time or uh, re reduce your cycle, that just about always leads to an increase in productivity that those are the three tenets that you're just talking about right so decreasing your batch size and increasing feedback 
uh, the practice then would be shorter releases or release cycles that, that would underpin that, right? Exactly. So the principle is, you know, the size of your batch directly influences feedback, bigger batch, slower feedback, smaller batch, more often feedback. That's a principle that you can understand and then you can figure out how to apply it. One of the ways you might imply it is by releasing more often, definitely. Um, one of my favorite principles from XP is this idea of self-similarity, that good ideas are fractal. And so you, you can talk about feedback in the terms of releasing a product, but a good test in when you're doing TDD is a very small feedback loop. And it's the same principle that you're applying around batch size and feedback loops, but you're doing it at a level of lines of code instead of a release. And once you can understand these principles, you can go up and down these fractal levels. For example, a spine, you can apply it to a single meeting. You can apply it to a team, to a department, to a whole organization, to a, you can take a particular tool and map a spine out for it. There's, there's so many different ways we've found to apply it because it's, it's a fractal model. Okay, so one of the places that you may uh, apply this is in your overall software uh, software development life cycle but you definitely aren't limiting it to only that did you start off with the xp book and with the values principles and practices that that came from that and then expanded on it or uh, how how do you end up i think you kind of answered this before but ending up with needs and tools on the other end did you kind of organically get there or was it something that you specifically were looking at a way of uh, introducing XP, XP's values, principles and practices? So we were just actually trying to be effective and have an impact in a large organization at the time. We had no idea that we were building a model, that we were going to name it, that we were going to do anything with it. We were just trying to be effective. And the lady that we were working with was a good facilitator and good at extracting things. And through her questions, we realized we were both intuitively applying XP. And then through further conversations, we added tools on the bottom. We added needs on the top. And we didn't know if there was more or less things to add or take away. But over time, we found that thinking of things at these five different levels and splitting them out and, and being intentional about which one you're currently at and getting other people to agree about which level you're currently talking about has been a very powerful mechanism in our coaching. And when we realized that, we sort of naturally felt the need to share it. But we never set out to sort of model what we were doing. It was kind of almost a side effect. So if I've got a team that's been doing things the agile way for a while, perhaps has read XP and just trying to, to imply some of those practices, perhaps not the whole set, or, you know, wants to wants to find a way of improving and wants to try out this uh, the spine model what what are the steps that I would first take to uh, to introduce the team to the spine model and you mentioned the program of boot, uh, uh, the the bootstrap but where do I go beyond that so there's there's a few different there's a few different ways we've done that if you've got some very experienced people in the team they might be able to do some versions of a map sort of off the bat um, how we've introduced it in the past I'd like to give you an example that happened in the last week a particular team is struggling with something and when we took a look at it we realized a lot of it has to do it, it relates to their inability to predict their capacity they don't know right now what their capacity to get work through is 
And so they want to start measuring it. So how should they do it? Should they use T-shirt sizes, story points? Should they look at flow and start measuring cycle time? You know, there's, there's a bunch of different ways they could try and solve this problem. And what we did was we sat and said, okay, well, what is the need you're trying to satisfy in this specific context? The need is to measure through, is to, to measure, know your capacity, okay? If that is your need, then what should we value? Okay, and what? And then we sort of just jumped up and down and around until we'd kind of mapped out the spine that represented what it is they were trying to do and gave them the first experiments that they were going to try. And so then that example, they decided they were going to do continue, uh, cumulative flow diagrams for the next few weeks and to see if it helped them to make any smarter decisions. For a different team, they might have decided to start with story points. But the point is, once they've got that spine, they can start to evolve it over time and they can record where they've been and what they've done. So when they make the spine, you would almost just draw it out on a big on a big piece of paper, like an A2, and just state down the side the needs, values, principles, practices, tools, and then like refine it so everybody can always have a snapshot. Because I'm just asking, because it might be difficult to keep the spine in your head when you're so new to it. Yes, I mean, how we normally do it is just write the five words down the left-hand side of a whiteboard and then start a conversation, and then a while later it starts emerging. But you could absolutely do it in Excel or on a piece of paper or anything. Yeah, but it's important to remember step zero, draw the boundaries of the system first. Otherwise, you're you're going to be having a different discussion. Yeah, so like in this case, it's like it's all about the capacity of the team and nothing else. That's fair. And then I wanted to ask, you guys have gone touring with this before, like so there's a lot of chats and presentations. There was a developer UG last week that I missed, unfortunately. Sorry, wanted to go. But in, have you guys presented on this overseas? We were actually fortunate enough to go to Washington, D.C. in August last year and presented at Agile 2015, uh, which was fun. Was it well received? <laughs> So it was interesting. The slot we were given was the first slot after the big Thursday evening party. Um, so that was, was quite a, an interesting slot to do. Um, we didn't have the kind of turnout we were hoping for because they've got a like, sort of a system where you can see who's booked to come. And we had a lot less people in it that, than were booked to come. Um, but in the, the feedbacks and evals, we got one of the highest ratings of, of all of the talks in the conference. Wow, that's really nice. And locally, how have the, has the reception been here? So it's interesting. There's people, when you explain it, they just intuitively get it and they see its use and sort of start adopting it. And there's other people who look at it and say, yeah, you know, sure, that's interesting, and then move on. And again, we're okay with either. We're not trying to sell anything here. We found it useful. We're getting better at explaining it every time. I think because we use it in so many different ways, there's so many different ways we can explain it. We we do need to get better at that. One of the ways we're trying to do it is we're starting to write down the thinking. Uh, so we've got two different websites that we do them on. Do that on. Um, the one is spinemodel.info, and the purpose of that site is really just to capture the essence of what the model is about. And then there's spine.wiki, and the purpose of that site is to create a catalog a whole big catalog of needs, values, principles, practices, and tools that you can draw from. Because often you sit there with a blank A2 piece of paper and it's it's just too blank. You need to start somewhere. So that catalog becomes an interesting place to pull things from. 
And we've done it. We've got this idea of archetypes. So you can take Scrum, you can take XP. We've taken Safe and a couple of the others, and we've even taken the Agile Manifesto, and we've mapped them out as a spine. And what's fun about that is you can then actively start comparing them to each other. And you can say, okay, well, look at Scrum. It's it's mostly around practices, uh, whereas XP's got values, principles, practices. And you can start to get a sense of, of where the different things pitch and what needs they satisfy uh, and, and start to pick different things. So let me not rant on Scrum too much. So we say start at the need and then align everything down in as much as you can in a straight spine-like alignment. If you don't do that, your spine will be crooked and you will die. <laughs> Extreme spine manipulation. So, so just to walk for people who don't have it in front of them down, at the top you've got needs. So why does the system exist? Why are the people a part of the system? Then you've got values, which are essentially what are you optimizing for? What are those qualities, those labels that you want on the system? So for XP, it was simplicity, respect, courage, communication, and feedback. With the five, yeah. Um, and so that's what this, that's the qualities that we want to optimize for. If we can have more of those, then we'll be closer to it, what it is that we need. And what we find is that people who are in very strategic positions, your business type people, they're very comfortable around this needs and values level conversation but when they want to have it technical people are on their phones waiting so that we can talk about the work again and in the reverse of that if technical people are busy talking they, they want to talk about the tools and the practices and and the the more strategic or business people are saying well that's detailed stuff we can get to that later and these two worlds seem to be sort of separated and one of the beauties of the spine model is that it puts principles in the middle and principles of how does work actually work? How does value flow through organization? How does work flow? You can take ideas from complexity theory, from queuing theory, from flow. Um, that's going to be my pick if it's not Donnie's, the, the flow book. We call it the blue book. We've got a blue book, a red book, and a purple book. We'll get to that later. But the principles of how work works. So you start at needs, you decide what you, the values you are for optimizing, then you decide which set of principles are important in this context to honor and to, to really focus on. And from there, you can decide what practices and tools are important. And if you're able to talk up and down that, you can connect the people who are traditionally thinking in more longer time horizons and about, you know, you mentioned earlier, the guy who just wants his feature done. Well, he's optimizing for a different set of needs and values. And if you can get back up there and get some agreement, then you can come back down again and align that spine from top to bottom. But it also has to do with rates of change, right? So one of the things that is important in good software design is that you separate rates of change. And the same is true in good team design, good organizational design. What you find is that if you're in a mental labor environment, which we are as, as software developers, the, the rate of changes of your tools should be very high. And the rate of change of the practices. Who has ever worked in an organization where the only ticketing system has been Jira or whatever for the last 20 years, and the teams around it has shifted over time? That, to me, is a, well, 
that to me points out that their spines are just not aligned. They don't have a clue what the need is that they're satisfying every day. So as you go up the spine, you find your rates of change are slower. The need is not going to change all that often. Or if it does, you're probably going to make some shifts more at an organizational level. So once you can establish the needs, you can go back to that on a fairly slow cadence and, and redress it. But mostly you're just pulling people back up to it, reminding them what they are. And then values change slightly more often, which principles are important to focus on, change a bit more. And then the practices and tools, every week, every two weeks, you should be getting together and saying, what's working, what's not, what should we experiment with next, what can we throw out, what can we introduce in order to better sort of earn these principles we think are important and optimize for those values and meet the need. Does that sort of make sense? That does. I was just thinking it's a great way to go from horizon zero to horizon one, horizon two. I don't know, would the need sit on horizon two or horizon three? If you think about those three horizons for uh, planning, looking at the future. I think that's a different system boundary. Uh, I think it's a completely orthogonal system boundary, and it would be an interesting thing to draw out anyway. <laughs> okay, I just thought I was onto something. <laughs> we'll have to whiteboard it sometime. But uh, this is really interesting. I think you guys, this is great. I'm trying to. I think it was like what Kevin asked is like, is there the just add water? Like, how can we start doing this? tomorrow at the office or at least start going through this path yeah from what i'm seeing it looks like you should just try and identify um a system so or a need and you could even just take one you could even start with the need uh in in the context of a system uh, and and build up around that start to be more aware about which level people are talking at because they they will tend to have be think they're in a tools conversation or in a practice or in a principles if, if you can start to get a sense of which conversations people are having and start to pick up when different people are having different conversations you can start to already see useful ways to apply the model because you can pull people to the same level and they you'll find that's more useful um that does make a lot of sense to look for the high level so just almost catalog people's conversations for a day or two in the teams and then start working from there well yes and just make a, a note it, this is an interesting tools conversation we're having it seems that we are disagreeing on this tool uh can we talk about something about what it is that we want to get out of this tool uh, just becoming aware of the the point of a useful debate is to start with agreement you have agreement and then you have this agreement to get somewhere so when your conversations is just one person saying the other person is wrong go up a level just always go up see what happens now yeah well this is, this isn't directly related but are you guys familiar with the toyota five wires i think it's actually part of the xp book point donnie go <laughs> please don't do that please please don't do that uh, if you ask a why question, you ask a belief question. If your if your team functions on a practices and tools level and you start asking a why question, you start asking them to, to defend their beliefs. And for all the old people out there, the longest thread on the news group, not the news groups now, NNTP servers, was Emacs versus VI. And that was a belief war. 
right? So please don't ask why. Ask how. Ask the five hows. Because if you ask that question, you question the behavior of the person. And when you question the behavior of the person, it is much easier to defend because behavior that is not attached to who I am. A why question is attached to who I am. You don't want to be attacking people in the world. But then if we had a tools discussion and you ask the, ask the objective question of why are we using Pivotal Tracker or Jira or what are that, uh, would that not lead from tools into practices? Whereas if you're on a practices question and you ask how, doesn't that lead you back down towards tools? It's a good, fair point. The thing about asking how are we using Pivotal get you to what is the behavior we, we are actually currently mapping. And once you have safety there, once you have safety there and you have agreement there, you are then welcome to ask the why question. If you start with the why question, you put people on the back foot. You don't ever want to do it. Another way of avoiding why is ask what about that is important. Yes, I, I always think of that as a, 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 there was that ad but I guess all parents would know this. When a child just goes, why? And you answer, why? And you answer, why? And that just never goes anywhere. And it's easy to think it won't happen with adults in a team, but it so quickly does by somebody just keeping dead quiet. And, and the other reason I'm not a fan of that is it assumes root cause. And if you're in a complex system, there's very seldom one root cause for anything. So a lot of the thinking that we use comes from, from complexity theory and from, from the Kinevin model. And it sort of teaches you how to deal with complexity. The, the challenging thing about complexity is that you don't know how something's going to turn out until you actually do it. So it doesn't help to do root cause analysis. If you're in a car factory and you want to understand which machine conked out, perhaps you're in more of a complex environment. And the thing about, I mean, in a, a complicated environment, if you're in a complicated environment, you can pull in experts, you can do root cause analysis, you can understand the data, and you can figure out why something happened because it's complicated, but you can understand it. If you're in a complex environment, which is a lot of software teams exist in complexity, you don't know how something's going to happen and, until it actually has already happened. You can start to see the patterns, but root cause analysis is not all that useful. So there's another butterfly, Kinevin model. Yeah, please link to that uh, so we can put them in the show notes. I'll give you 200 bucks if you can spell it without Googling. <laughs> I'll try that later. <laughs> what is it? Kinevin. 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 And obviously you would spell that C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. -E right, because English. Because Welsh, actually, yeah. Oh, well, close enough. They're still on the same island. Did you just so insult the Welsh people there? Yeah, I'm hoping it's mostly South Africans who listen to this because you're going to get some hate mail. Oh, oh, well. Mostly South Africans. Mostly. A couple of Americans. Until we I go hope. viral, then he's got a problem. Well, then I'll just change my name. What'll be the other Kevin on this podcast, right? <laughs> just defer the blame. Uh, okay, so... What you mentioned there, though, about assuming root cause, as we're working in these systems, I suppose when you get down, to, especially when you get down to practices and tools, each practice, let, let's stop at practice even, is possibly 
um, they're in support of multiple principles, which could be in support of multiple values. Uh, It's a complex system. It's not just one root cause at the end that you're going to get to. The idea is to meet the need. That's the point you're trying to get to. And I actually see all practices as training wheels. I don't think there's really any practices that you can say you should absolutely do for all time. You know, for, for example, when we work with teams, there's two practices that we strongly push, and that is visualize the work that's in progress and retrospect on a cadence. And those are really the only two practices that we say should stay in a team. But conceivably, a team could transcend both of those as well. If they reach a level where they don't need it, they should stop doing it. The goal is always to meet the need, and practices are the way to get you closer than that. But I don't believe that you should treat practices as absolute. Otherwise, that's where calcification starts. That's where things get mandated and people aren't aware of why they're doing it anymore. And you get the monkey on the banana and the ladder and the spray gun problem. Okay, I'm just trying to visualize that. (laughs) Have you heard that story before? I'm not sure it ever happened, but it's one that the consultants like to trot out. It never happened. Yeah. Please do tell us. I'm sure we could replicate it, though, with developers and what's the banana equivalent. (laughs) So you put five five monkeys in a room and you put a ladder with a banana suspended from the ceiling. And every time a monkey climbs the ladder to get the banana, you spray the monkey with water. All right? You spray all of the monkeys with water, not just the monkey that's climbing. And then you slowly start replacing the monkeys with fresh monkeys. And what you find is that you can then get to a point where you've got all fresh monkeys, none of which have ever been sprayed. But if any one of the monkeys tries to climb up and get the banana, they will all attack that monkey. And whether or not that experiment is real or not, you can see that happening in teams. They do things because some stage several years ago, somebody got sprayed and and now everybody's attacking the monkey. And by being aware of what your spine is and having this metacognitive ability to question it and to think about your thinking, you can know when it's time to let go of a practice and move on to something else. And then when new people join the team, maybe it's time to start that practice again because maybe they don't have the same level of skill going back to Dreyfus model. And and then you need to go back to some some more tightly rule-bound practices and go you know backwards and forwards along that Um and if you have that spine in place and agreed to, it's much easier to do. That. That's a great way of thinking about it. Because I think, especially existing teams that are entrenched and where people have cycled out like that, you start, you need to start asking these almost tougher questions, for lack of a better word, but get up and understand you know, the needs and then go down and dismantle the old practices that don't work and get new ones in place. Absolutely. We, we believe teams are immutable. If you add or remove a person from a team, you have a new team. That is a great line. Teams are immutable. Tagline for this episode. That sounds quite a lot like... uh, So uh, Sarah May was talking about the three different metaphors for software development in Ruby Fuse's keynote, uh, where she introduces um, the factory, the workshop, and then adds onto that the stage, uh, and how the dynamic of... Uh, just removing or changing one person out or putting a different person even into the same role that brings different experience into that role uh, causes the entire team's dynamic to change. You know, I have buttons and then Kevin said I should go. This is one of Kevin's. Go. 
it's, it, it goes back to, for me, the fundamental metaphor of an organization. Do you see an organization as a machine? That's the, the sort of natural one that people think of, that you've got this motor, and if you want it to go faster, you buy a turbo and you slap it on the side. And if the machine stops working, you find out which cog is broken, and you pull that cog person out, and then you look on CVs for another shape, same shaped cog person and you shove them back in again and now your machine can carry on running. And this is where you get words like resources starting to be used and you get roles and clearly defined role definitions and that sort of thing is when you're trying to get the people in service of the machine. That's a very old industrial age way of actually seeing an organization. And we prefer to see an organization as a social structure. And if you can rather put than put people in service of the machine, you put machines in service of the people, you end up with a far more powerful, more dynamic, more agile system. Because humans can learn, they can collaborate, they can experiment, they can try new things that a machine just simply can't do. And so if you put humans at the center, which I actually believe was fundamentally the purpose of agile in the first place, you end up in a far more powerful place. And if you if you lock down roles and role descriptions, you you calcify, you you start to become in service of the machine again. So as an example, the role of a scrum master, for us, that is a practice and it's training wheels at best and pretty much always otherwise dysfunctional. You should try and make your scrum master redundant as soon as possible. And on record, I just want to... No, it definitely makes sense that these things are just training wheels. I understand what you're doing, or the most value out of something. Treat it all like blueprints, not as. Uh, I love how people like follow the agile uh, books as if it's like the law, and you go like that's direct conflict with what you're trying to do. Always just gives me a little chuckle. Isn't it ironic that? Well, the third sentence in the Agile Manifesto is people and interactions over processes and tools. And then all the conversations we have is about processes and tools. I've seen that over and over. And uh, for me, that has, again, going back to the Dreyfus model, a connection between somebody being a novice or being an expert at something. Um, if you are at a novice level, you can really only focus on the, the practices and tools. But if you lock those in and formalize them, you're, you're going to limit people to only ever being novice to advanced beginner. They're never going to be able to progress beyond that. Whereas if you see all practices as training wheels that are in service to greater principles, you can start to intentionally reflect and think about your thinking and thinking about your practices and, and evolve it to a better place. That's absolutely beautiful. Guys, is there anything... We haven't covered that's important that we kind of need to get to. I just want to make sure that everybody's well aware of what time you're making us record this. 10 p.m. 10 H00. Two hours before midnight. Yes, we're old. On a Monday. And my kids are going to be up at five and I'm going to be phoning you. Our program is not supposed to be these night owls that work until two in the morning on pizza and, you know, dosed up on caffeine. We find that practice and tool to be ineffective. <laughs> I fully agree with that. <laughs> Very ineffective. So in the service of the need that is sleep that you obviously value, 
then is there anything else that you want to bring up before we wrap this up okay so we, we are busy putting together two workshops for this the one would be just a vanilla this is the spine model this is how you can apply it and then the second one would be okay for your context for your environment let's actually create your first spine of the system so that we can help people think through that um, that's two workshops we're busy getting together the other way is to go to spinemodel.info, which is the explanation of the model, or, or spine.wiki. Uh, or, or you can read Kent's ex Extreme Programming Explained. If you haven't read that yet and you're a developer, uh, go read it. We'll wait. <laughs> is it a small book? <laughs> yeah, very small, but very dense. No, it's not that dense, but no. it's it'll get you thinking. The dense book, if you want a dense book, is... The Principles of Product Development Flow, Second Generation Lean Product Development, Don Reinertsen. That is, yeah, if you're in product development, if you're in software development, you need to have read that book at some point. Cool. I've got that down. And we'll get all the other links from you guys. So I think maybe before we head into picks, if people, other than those websites, if people want to follow you guys directly or your company and get in touch, what's the best way to do that? Well, I get to Sanson at about half past seven in the mornings, so you can start. I'm actually only half kidding. If if you, anybody wants to sit in and observe on some of the stuff we're doing, we're always open to that. But uh, my Twitter handle is at Kevin Trithui, and I'm from Driven Alliance. So DrivenAlliance.com is our organization. Um, Donny? So I'm at Donny Roo. I'm at DonnyRoo.com, and I am from DonnyRoo.com. Um, I think you will find me with those hints. We'll look them up. Cool, and I don't know. Do you guys have uh, any picks for us to round off the show? So I'm I'm a book person. So if if you liked what I was saying earlier and fairly badly about systemic thinking, anything by Russell Ackoff, highly recommended. Uh, there's a very good paper. I'll quickly look up the name of now. That's a good place to start. And you mentioned a flow book earlier. Or is that Donnie's pick? So let's let's cover the three books. There's the blue book, the red book, and the purple book. The blue book is the long title we gave you previously. There's a reason why I don't say that title because I can never ever remember it. Uh, the red book is a guy called John Seddon, and it is called Freedom from Command and Control. The purple book is Lean Enterprise by, among others, Jess Humble. I think if Everyone read those three books plus Ken Beck's. The software world will be more interesting. Jess Humble's the continuous delivery guy. Yes. It's also a great book. Cool. Kevi? Cool. Uh, one pick from me this week is I've been reading Jeff Edwards' uh, blog to book uh, called Effective Programming More Than Writing Code. Um, it's basically the stuff that he's got in his blog, but compiled into a, a Kindle book where he's kind of brought things that are in, on a similar, under a similar theme together. So things like principles of good programming and hiring programmers the right way, getting your team to work together. Though all of his uh, blog articles about those topics, he's just kind of assembled together uh, into a book. It's been quite an interesting read so far. Uh, yeah, that's my pick for this week. Can I throw a new pick in there? A book I have not read yet, and I know will be good, is Ron Jeffries, The Nature of Software Development. And if I say Ron Jeffries, I hope everyone knows who I talk of. Why does it sound so familiar? Help me out quickly. 
No. Fine, I'll Google it. He goes in the same sentence as uh, Kent Beck and Ward Cunningham. Yes. So I can't take show notes down by hand on paper, old school, and Google people's names. It's my <laughs> shortcoming. Need more hands. Can I punch something else quickly as well? Please go. So we've been playing around with this concept for too long now, and we're now just about actually ready to launch it. Um, is the concept of team tourism. So one of the things, you know, if, if you're a developer, you're getting good at using your tools and your practices and you're finding things that work and doesn't work. At a particular point in time, it's very useful to go and start visiting other teams. And perhaps you discover that something that never works for you works in their environment or something that works in their environment you can bring back to your team. And there's, it's a very valuable sort of information ther- sharing thing. So what we want to do is take this tourism idea and sort of use that as a metaphor that each team is, is kind of like an island and you can have an ambassador from your team go and visit another team and spend a bit of time with that team and then sort of share ideas, share how they, their system works, maybe see what their spine is if they have one and then bring those ideas back to their own team. So we're actually busy printing passports and you're going to be able to order a stamp so you can have a passport and you can go and visit a team and you get your passport stamped and kind of track which teams you've been to over time. And then, you know, maybe some teams have a particular you know, open island policy you can visit anytime you like. And, and others might have a visa system where you actually need to apply for a visa before you can come and visit. But we'd like to set up this sort of crowdsourcing sharing way that you can know what teams are out there that are available to visit. And we can start actually getting people to share what it is that they're doing and how they're doing it across like that. And the further extension to their idea is if teams could start publishing their spines to other teams, that starts an immediate interesting conversation. So if, if teams want to set up their own customs or home affairs, do they need to get in touch with the guys <laughs> or should they just watch follow you on Twitter and watch for the breaking news? So we've been doing it low tech up to now. We've just been contacting friends and in our network and companies and saying, hey, can we visit Team Tourism? It's a thing. And we've done it in Durban and Joburg and a bit in Cape Town and a few other people have tried it. And there's been a lot of value there. What we're busy doing now is just setting up a website and the passports and all of that. And, you know, if you if you follow us on Twitter, you can keep track of when that's actually available. But there's no reason not to do it tomorrow. If you have a friend say, hey, can I come and be a tourist for a couple of hours? and pair program with them for a bit um it it doesn't have to be a, a sort of a technical thing you can do it now and and we've been doing it and enjoying it and we've got a comp- couple of companies even some big companies already on board with it that are keen to do it so it's, it's quite exciting oh well done that sounds great <laughs> yeah it's something i want to do more of so yeah i i mean i'd be happy to visit a team and draw a spine for them as a bit of a exercise and in that i can learn how they work and they can learn a few things that i might know and and there's a sharing of value there that you know money doesn't have to change hands for that you it's it's everybody's learning and and getting a, something out of it oh thanks that's great right um yeah i think from my side i'll just drop a link for our show notes i've just got one pick kind of happened right before the show uh, a long medium article on how to build stable systems it's quite a nice read the guy also tries to chunk up 
a lot of the points he makes and doesn't get so stuck in the tools and it's more about the shorter cycles and feedback and this that and the next and i'll leave this exercise for the listeners to go and check it out so well guys thanks uh, this was interesting um hugely insightful it's a nice way to see the nlp uh, knowledge being applied and it's a great becoming aware of all the implicit ways we communicate which is actually underpinned by a lot of these things and giving us some homework to do yeah thanks guys thanks for joining us and uh, introducing us to the spine model I mean, I'd, been, I'd been seeing that you guys had been presenting it and at conferences and user groups and every single time i've just hasn't worked out with my schedule so yeah really well, cool. th- thanks very much for inviting us on the show it's been a, a good chat and we've enjoyed it as well Cool. Well, that's it then for episode 29 of ZA Dev Chat. Thanks for listening, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Good night. Or good morning if you're listening to it in the morning, but good night for us. It's morning somewhere in the world.